reach out to people behind, listen to people behind the, all the prisons, like even the federal prisons, state prisons, municipalities. Black Lives Matter, man. That's that's it. Like, I mean, Black Lives Matter. We just we just gotta come together, people on the outside, inside, and listen to the people on the inside, and reach back to more people in prison. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. New York has the highest number of wrongful convictions in the nation. Currently, the law makes it impossible for innocent people who pleaded guilty and are without the benefit of DNA evidence to challenge their convictions in court. This situation prevents countless people with credible innocence claims from obtaining relief in court. In addition, law enforcement is legally allowed to lie in interrogation about the presence of evidence. This enables coerced and false confessions. This practice has devastating consequences, accounting for 43 innocent New Yorkers who have been exonerated after falsely confessing to serious crimes. 80% of those exonerated are people of color. Several new bills would rectify the situation. S324A and A6570 would end the use of deception in interrogations and help prevent wrongful convictions. A98 and S266, the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act, would repair the law to enable an authentic legal pathway to exoneration. The bill would allow people without the benefit of DNA evidence in their cases to return to court to prove their innocence. It would also provide a right to post-conviction discovery. Further, it would establish a right to counsel for those with wrongful conviction claims. Another bill, the Youth Right to Remain Silent Bill, would require children to be provided with legal counsel before they are permitted to waive their constitutional right to remain silent. By requiring that a youth consult with an attorney before waiving that right, the bill would ensure that all youth, not just those who can afford a private attorney, would have the true benefit of their constitutional right. In Louisiana, many inmates are trapped in lifelong prison sentences after being promised a chance at release at 10 years and 6 months of good behavior. After the Supreme Court temporarily halted the death penalty in 1973, the state made life sentences more punitive, first by requiring murder convictions to carry a 20-year minimum in prison, and later 40 years, and by 1979, then completely removing parole for those serving life. These are clear broken promises, states Jason Williams, the Orleans Parish District Attorney. Since last year, several of the 18 10-6 lifers have been released from prison after Williams petitioned the courts to re-sentence them to time served. And now, Senator Regina Barrow and Senator Franklin Foyle have introduced the two bills that would allow the 45 10-6 lifers across the state eligible for both parole. Barrow's bill would provide immediate parole eligibility to anyone facing a life sentence for a crime committed before July 2, 1973. Foyle's bill would provide parole eligibility only to those 10-6 lifers who pled guilty. 
Andrew Hundley, the executive director of the Louisiana Parole Project, explains. These bills affect the men who have been incarcerated longer than anyone else in Louisiana. They are in their 70s and 80s and have served 50 or more years. What's the value to public safety for their continued incarceration? This week, we share the story of Isaiah Willoughby. He's been on the show before, talking about his incarceration related to protest actions on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, he walks us through the events leading up to and after his arrest, including the police murder of his neighbor in Seattle. Willoughby details hazing by guards and other discrimination he faced while inside, which he feels was directly related to his arrest as a BLM protester. Here he is. My name is Isaiah Willoughby. I am from Seattle, Washington. I'm in custody of the BOP Mendota FCI in Mendota, California. My regular registration number is 49960086. And I'm, I am in custody for the, uh, I pled guilty to conspiracy to commit arson 371 for the East Precinct, uh, the CHOP in Seattle, Washington during 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. So my friend, Manny Ellis, he was my roommate. So this is a story. So in uh, March 2020, before, during COVID, I was working at Leshwab. I was a technician. And me working at Leshwab, my, uh, my aunt, she had runs a transitional housing program called uh, God's Hand Up. One of, my, one of her tenants in that house was Manny Ellis. So she moved in in February of the, the rent of her house, and I happened to be living downstairs, and I'm in charge of all the tenants that come in, and I'm supposed to watch and protect them. So I work all the time. But on March 3rd, I just got home from work, and I was talking to Manny, Manny Ellis. And uh, he just got home from church, the German church. So I was talking to him a normal day. It's a normal day, and I was like, we're going, we're going through COVID conditions. He goes to the store. I go to sleep. It's a normal night. It's a normal day. It's a normal life. Right? The store, the corner store, the 7-Eleven is around the corner, like a block and a half from our house. It's right around the corner. So the next day I come back from work, I go to work in the morning, I get up at 5 a.m. to go to work. I get off work at 6 p.m., I get home around 8, and then one of the other tenants, uh, Teresa, she is telling me that Manny Ellis is dead, he got killed. And that's when I, I didn't believe her, I said, what, what are you talking about? And then he got murdered, he was killed by the police. This was March 3rd, 2020. I go upstairs and talk to my aunt, Aunt Kimberly, and she's a landlord, and she says, yeah, he was killed. I said, where? For why? What happened? They had no explanation. My auntie said, we don't know. We had no idea what happened. There's nothing to explain. There's nobody. There's no nothing. So I walked to the corner store to see what happened. There's no blood. There's nobody. Nothing. There's no balloons there. There's nothing. All right. I go, I go back to work. March 23rd, I get laid off from COVID. After everybody that closed the NBA, I get laid off from work. I'm essential service. So laid me off. I'm unemployed, so now I'm on, I get unemployment. So I'm sitting there at the house, just relaxing, watching TV. Manny's room is locked up. He's no longer there. We have no idea what happened. And that's when I see Breonna Taylor on TV. I see the Ahmaud Arbery incidents. I see all the other incidents. And then George Floyd passed away. And we've seen, I've seen it on TV. And so I'm in Seattle, Washington. I live in Seattle and Tacoma. So this incident happened in Tacoma where Manny Ellis was murdered. And May, after George Floyd died, I got into the protest. Like, I was not in the protest until after George Floyd died. But I got into the protest watching TV 
but I didn't go to any protests. And then in June, June 3rd is when I started watching the news that night. I just happened to go to sleep. And then they show a bystander video of a cell phone footage of Manny Ellis, my roommate. He's getting beat and kicked and choked by the police. And then he goes, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And that's a, this is a little 30-second video we see on the news. And then he's getting choked and beat. And that's how I knew how he died. That's the first moment since March I knew what happened to him. So I went and talked to my aunt. I said, yeah, the police killed him. And some good Samaritans finally turned in the video footage. So he was getting hogtied first. He got hogtied. Then he got tased when he was hogtied. They put handcuffs on him, tied him, hogtied him. Then they tased him several times. Then they put a spit hood right over his head, and that's why he died. He could not breathe. He suffocated him. And he said, I could not breathe. So he was one of the first, and I knew him personally. He lived in our house. Like, this is how it stopped for me. This is why I got into the whole Black Lives Matter protest, and I ended up setting the fire to the East Precinct. So when I went to, when I went to the CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupy protest in Seattle, that's where I'm from, and I've seen thousands of people there, and they're telling me that the East Precinct is the white supremacy organization or white nationalists, the KKK or Klan mentality. The East Precinct is a building where the police officers are white nationalists or white supremacists, where they conduct the operations as their headquarters. That is why all the protesters at CHOP were at the East Precinct in Seattle, took that whole building over. So I was at the protest getting all this information from other fellow Seattle residents and my, myself. I didn't know. All my years in Seattle, I've never had a problem with police until 2020. Like in 2018, I've never, I didn't know it was racist. Like I didn't, I was oblivious to it based on my experiences until that time when I actually looked at my criminal record and seen all the petty stuff that was by East Precinct did to me. I didn't know it was white nationalists or white supremacist organization. Those officers, what I was told at the protest. So on June 12th, I seen that on the news that they abandoned the building. And I seen that they were somebody that wrote Manny Ellis's name on top of the building. So I went to the protest, and then uh, the night night I came back to Seattle, and I I got a gallon of gas, and then I set the the building on fire. When they I, they had it vacant, and that's when my charges came. And then I was I was charged June 19th on June 10th. I got arrested in Tacoma, and then I was arrested in Seattle as a state case. It was just a state case. So then I got bailed out by Northwest Community Bail Fund for 30000 They bailed me out. I was in a Fed case, and I was good. I was out. I was probably going to do nine months in the jail in Seattle. But then the Feds came and started picking up the case. And I was only I was the first protester charged in federal court in CTEC. That's when I was charged with federal 841. Looking at five years, 60 months, mandatory. So they started making all the protest cases federal. I didn't know all this. So then... During my incarceration, during my duration of my tenure in BOP CTAC, Manny Ellis' case is going nationwide. His death becomes public. After George Floyd died, now everybody's looking at Vesca, so his video footage is everywhere. So now he's getting press media coverage. My family's getting interviewed. We're getting interviewed. Now everybody's putting the two together. We're roommates. Then in May of 2021, the officers were charged with murder by Attorney General. The Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, charged the three officers who killed Manny Ellis with murder. So after they were charged with murder, then I told my attorney, Dennis, Dennis Carroll, that I would take a negotiated a plea agreement where I could get out in 2021. Because instead of doing 60 months, they were trying to give me 60 months or go to trial, I took a deal where I could get out that year after I knew the officers were going to be charged with murder. Because that, that shocked me. Like, him just leaving and not coming back, I didn't experience anything like that in my life. Like, him just... Being murdered like that, I never experienced anybody just murdered. Like, walking to the corner store, 
and he never came home. Like, he disappeared. Like, it was a normal day for us. He just disappeared. And so I was, I went, I went, I just went lost him after that. After I saw the footage, and so I got involved in a Black Lives Matter protest, and I'm adamant about making a difference now that it happened to me. Like, I wasn't one of the people out there just watching, participating. This happened to our house, our family. The police came and murdered one of our friends from our house and during COVID when everybody was pandemic. So that's how I got involved, and that's why I did my arson for the for that, for justice, for people, and he got, the officers got charged. Thank God the attorney general, his sister, and family all adamant about getting justice for Manny, and now, right now, the murder case is, uh, they're out on bail for 10000 each, officers, they're bailed out by their brother of construction firm, one of the officers, they're all out on 10000 each, 100000 bail, 10000 they're all out on bail, they're still getting paid right now, all the officers, I think the trial is sometime this year. I think they are specifically having a grievance towards me individually. This is my first time in custody, and it seems like each facility, the procedures have been deliberately indifferent against my behavior to get released. It seems uh, malice. I felt like I was being targeted because of my incarceration BOP. They put me in a hole. They did not take me to the quarantine unit. They didn't put me with general population. They did not feed me in CTAC detention center BOP. They are kicking my door. They were poisoning my food. They were... They were doing typical white supremacist behavior towards their doing to African Americans years ago. But I didn't know that. I was just subject to this treatment for the first time in my life. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a history of bias against I didn't know that I didn't know it was racism until I read my history and I got books and but I was complaining. But I felt like being in a federal prison is they trying to extraordinarily charge me and bury me when I see in Seattle, it was just a simple second degree arson. I just think they tried to make an example of me and try to silence everybody, silence us by putting us in, like they shipped me from Seattle to California when there's a prison in Oregon. So I feel like they're trying to bury me, silence me, and deter others or use me as a, a make sure no others do it, but I think they targeted me because I'm black, I'm African American, like how can a, the prosecutor Todd amend my charges, take the charges from the state, I was already bailed out, and then they rebooked me and put me in a new facility and offered me 67 months when my attorney said that you know, the crime was only worth nine months in state. My restitution is only $500. No, no damage, no property damage, yeah. So they're trying to, they're, they're just trying to silence me. Well, currently, when you get sentenced to a BOP facility, I'm located in Mendota, and this is my designated facility. I was transferred from SeaTac Detention Center. That was my BOP custody where I did the duration of my time. I was sentenced to 24 months. I've been in custody from July 14, 2020. I got sentenced October 5th of 2021 by Judge Kuhnhauer, federal court. My sentence of 24 months was entitled for me to be released December 29th of 2021 from BOP custody where I could get RRC, which is a program called Residential Reentry Center. And it's a program to reduce recidivism rates of incarcerated inmates. So the program is for by BOP policy, you're supposed to get designated 10% of your sentence of any current length into a residential reentry center so you can put your life back together. They have funds to do that. I am in B1 unit. My case manager is Jay Garcia. She's in charge of B1 inmates and residential release programs, transfers, 
and release separation procedures. So once I got out of quarantine, I talked to Garcia on Wednesday, January 22nd, when she arrived, and she said that she could not give me my halfway house, my RRC placement, even though she had time to process the paperwork. So as of this is my first time in a prison facility ever in my life. So at this facility, Mendota, I guess this is the standard operating procedure that Ms. Garcia, that Garcia says she does to inmates in this unit. So particularly in B unit, all the inmates who've been here for several years, six years, five years, 10 years, they're not getting no halfway house, no RRC placement, which is Bureau program. Well, one thing to the inmates want me to let you guys know is like the Garcia, the case manager in B1 unit, we need a new case manager that does proper paperwork to help inmates get RRC placement and transfer. She does not do her job. We need to make her track record. We need to remove her position, right? Our case manager here in B1 unit, negligent and malice and deliberate difference of behavior to not helping inmates. She's doing the opposite of helping inmates. She's lazy, just doesn't want to process her paperwork. So that is what's going on here at Mendota, California, and where I'm at located. Inmates have been here for six years, getting halfway house. She's not doing proper documentation and getting them their whole seven months of half miles. So I've been in three facilities. I've been in SeaTac Detention Center. I've been in Victorville FCI 2 in Southern California, and now I'm in Mendota, which is outside of Fresno, in Central Valley, California, is where I'm currently located right now. The treatment I faced because of my case in SeaTac, so my initial booking in Seattle, Washington, at SeaTac Detention Center was July 14, 2020. Uh, once I got into booking, I was immediately placed in a segregated housing unit, which is called the SHU. I guess it's illegal to put people in the SHU for your, their political beliefs because I represented Black Lives Matter. That's why I was arrested, right? I was a protester. So I was placed in the SHU, and when I was in the SHU, I have it's supposed to be 23 hours and one hour out. 23 hour lockdown and one hour for recreational exercise. So I received no one hour out. I was 24 hours locked down, and I was there until August 7th. I had trial with court, so I couldn't communicate with my attorney, Jesse Cantor, my Dennis Carroll, my legal representation. I could not communicate during my uh, shoe. They were holding my mail for a minute until, until, I, until I finally got a hold of them, but they were holding my mail. So my first initiation in the segregated housing unit was torture. It's mental, like mental torture. Like I was by myself, no family, no friends. Uh, you take a shower in there. Uh, they were kicking my window. It's five o'clock. They wouldn't feed me. It was like, uh, sure, she was one of the CEOs in there. He did not feed me through the tray slot, so they have a tray slot in the middle. They feed you hot trays. They stopped feeding me hot trays. They started giving me box lunches with no nutrition facts on it. These box lunches have nothing on it that, that would describe the context inside. So they started feeding you no hot meals. The next day, there's like just like a week into my day, started kicking my door. The guards would come in, walking down the hallway, right? And I, all the guards would bang on my window all the time, over and over and over again, like constantly. Like I was in constant uh, supervision, like like visual stalking. They were harassing me. They kept on knocking on my door, putting flashlights. When at nighttime, it, from count goes down to 10 o'clock, they would put flashlights in my window continuously all hours of the night and pound on the window to make me get up. So they were trying not to let me sleep. So that was, that was my initial treatment. And during this time, I got books. So one of the CEOs opened the door and was like, Willoughby, do you want to read something? Because like, obviously the guards knew it was called hazing. Obviously, they were all in on it as or later throughout my incarceration. Some of the guards admitted it. I came in cocky. They, were like, they told me they were basically hazing me. 
but at the time I didn't know. So I got some books. I started reading Chuck Olson's book. It's called Long Sins by Chuck Olson, one of the individuals in the Richard Nixon Watergate scandal. I read his book. Uh, I read uh, Martin Luther King's book on leadership. I read uh, Asada Shakur's book. When I was reading these nonfiction, so I was reading a lot of fiction. I was writing notes and taking quotes, like right? just passing time, because all I had enough time in my hand, I'm isolated by myself. No windows, no outside view. You don't know what the weather is. So I'm reading these books, and as I'm reading Asada Shakur's book, she's talking about her. She's a Black Panther. She's talking about her treatment in prison. And she's talking about the food being poisoned. Uh, they're not serving you. And I was thinking of my conditions in this situation. That's exactly what's happened to me. So first of all, I'm not getting fed. I can't order commissary. I can't communicate with my family. My family doesn't know where I am. And then uh, after I got released August 7th to General Pop, after I wrote a letter to my mom, they finally let me out to general population. And so on, when I was getting dressed to go from segregated housing unit to shoot downstairs to DB unit general population, the guards made me dress up in the attire. Right? So I put on a button-up slacks. I had it on, ready to go down to general population. Then they made me take it off and put on a suicide smock which is like a long, it's like a long john, like a coverall, coveralls, but it's lime green. And I guess it represents suicide floor. Then they started laughing, and they're all laughing when I put it on. I've never been in prison before, so I'm doing following instructions. So I'm naive to the situation. I, <laughs> so I go to General Pop. I walk into a group full of 100 inmates, 120, and they, I come in looking like I just came from suicide floor. So they're intentionally trying to uh, lower my uh, image or my mental health. But I didn't know that this was way the white supremacists have treated people before until I started reading the books in BOP and the, and the shoes. So when I read the, the um, there's another book, uh, the Martin Luther King Leadership, but I was reading how the tactics they did to Martin Luther King when he got arrested for protesting. And every time he disagreed, he protested, got arrested, how he was treated, incarcerated. I was like, oh, this is common things they do to minorities or BIPOC people in prison systems. But I did, now I've experienced it. Like, that was my initial booking on August 7th. And then from then, I was in General Pop, where we were on lockdown. 6, 7 a.m., we'd come out for breakfast. Then we'd come out for lunch at 11.30, and then child was at 5. And then we'd stay in our cell. We only come out for showers every two days. So every 48 hours, they let you shower for 15 minutes. But we caught them off lockdown in June of 2021. We got to go three hours out, uh, the rest in. So it would be split tier. That's how they did the uh, BOP. So we would have come out for three hours after the summer. So conditions did get better later in the year, but we was in lockdown. That was my BOP, and I just read books. I was on time to watch TV, like a commissary. That was my treatment. And the guards were messing with me until I filed agreements. Then I got when I got actual media help. That's when I got more leniency, and they stopped messing with me. A lot of people have lost mental health capacity, a lot of mental health issues, because when COVID initially was diagnosed in March, when we first heard of COVID, the people in here were telling me they were locked down, segregated from the family and friends, uh, April of 2020 till November of 2020. So all the people who were locked down, who were not used to being locked down, had mental health issues. When it came off of lockdowns, people were uh, isolated from other individuals. They didn't want to communicate. They don't give no treatment since COVID has happened. Like, they haven't given nobody any mental health evaluation since the, how the lockdowns have affected the inmate population here. The worst was Victorville. The worst, ex my personal experience was Victorville, FCI 2, California. I was in 34 days of quarantine. 
looking for transfer status. Victorville is the West Regional Hub. They transfer all inmates from pretrial or going through wherever you got to go for your court. West stop at Victorville during COVID. Terrible conditions. Like I wouldn't wish on nobody. No visits, no emails, no no, no leaving your cell. Uh, you have to hand wash your clothes. No laundry. You got to hand wash your boxers, socks, underwear, all this stuff. You have to hand wash. You only get three items. 34 days, I had three pair of items. I had to hand wash them over my socks. Two pairs of socks, I had to hand wash them. Uh, the food trays are malnutrition. Food trays are subpar. You get three meals. You get one cold meal at breakfast, two hot meals, and they're, the portions are minimum. minimum. Yeah, I'm starving, literally starving to death in Victorville, California. I just got to Mendota January 12th, and I just got commissary last week. I just got my first commissary since December. Like, I have been starving the last 90 days. Literally, like, starving in America. Like, starving. Like, they would not feed no fortune. So, we all we had with each other for survival. According to, yeah, definitely. Even different people, different races, different cards. Yeah, we're working together, like... In the unit workers, the people who work in the unit, the other other inmates, they would come out. They were like, we couldn't get letters, we couldn't get stamps or envelopes or mail, so they would share their stamps with us. We all come together. If somebody had extra two stamps, I got one stamp to mail, so I could mail back Liam and the prison support what was going on. But that's how we would help each other. We would have to save resources. Like some people who didn't have family and friends to communicate with, they would keep their stamps and give it to those who could, commu could communicate and write. So there's Asian card, there's the black card, there's the, the Pisces card, which is the Latin American Mexican card. Those are like the death of the different races in there. But that's how we communicated the work together. Some of us who sacrificed, like somebody who didn't have, didn't like eat breakfast, milk, or didn't like or lactose intolerant, they would save their milk trays and give to somebody else who was hungry. So somebody who didn't want to eat one of the meals, which is breakfast, is usually milk and cereal, not eat their meal because you didn't eat breakfast, and then you would give it to somebody else, somebody else was starving. That's how we work together now. It depends, like, yeah, give me this example. Like, going to Victorville, I had to write it since I'm one of the smart people, and I used to use my, uh, that's what they called me in the brains operations, what they used to call me. That's what, <laughs> but I used to, so I used to write the BP9s and the grievances. I knew all the inmate procedures they were violating. So I would write up all the grievances and write them to the counselor at Victorville to get us removed from Quarantine. Like, we was in quarantine for 34 days. Quarantine's only supposed to be 14 days. So for us to get removed, to get communication with our family and friends, the phone privileges back, I had to write the grievance up. So I had to write a case. I wrote a cop-out to the case case manager. Then I wrote a BP-9 grievance up, writing the demands, the resolution we seek, and the reinstatement of our phone and email privileges. And they responded, and they moved us all out from B unit to E unit. So in 34 days, we finally got the E unit where we got an hour out. The only time we could communicate is because we were all isolated was taking showers. So the only thing we could do together to help each other was coordinating solutions to get our privileges reinstated in Victorville. Thanks to Isaiah and everyone who helped with the show. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. 
please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.